السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين والعاقبة للمتقين ولا عدوان إلا على الظالمين وأشهد أن لا إله إلا الله وحده لا شريك له إله الأولين والآخرين وأشهد أن نبينا محمدا عبده ورسوله المصطفى الأمين اللهم صل وسلم وبارك على عبدك ورسولك محمد وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين ما بعد So welcome to another QP lesson and inshallah ta'ala today as we announced last week having finished off the um, the previous batch of surahs we, we normally take our surahs as we know in, in, in a batch of three after having finished the previous batch I thought that it would be good to just change uh, you know just change give us all a change in terms of topic and to go through something which we started uh, pretty much from our, our first year so one of the things that we like to do at QP for those of you that are new or for those of you that have uh, recently joined uh, for those of you that haven't been with us from the very beginning one of the things that we like to do is we like to bring in other facets of Quranic sciences and tafsir uh, in, in addition to what is the main body of our our attention and our scope and that is the study of tafsir as we know there are many other sciences there's many other uh, other complementary uh, complementary uh, sciences that that help a student of tafsir to progress so for example sometimes you know we may look at something like qiraat sometimes we may look at as we've done previously al-waqfu wal-ibtida how to start and pause and stop in the quran in terms of his recitation uh, and sometimes we may look at other things as well inshallah ta'ala as we continue with our tafsir studies but one of the things that we like to focus on also and i think that it's something which is extremely important is that we acknowledge that we stand on the shoulders of giants. We acknowledge that we stand on the shoulders of these amazing scholars of Islam, who today, some 1,400 years after the Hijrah of the Prophet وسلم, and at least a thousand years, if not more, 1,200 years from what is the beginning or the very well-known codification of the science of tafsir, we stand, we stand on the shoulders of those scholars of Islam that have gathered that knowledge and preserved that knowledge by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's permission, and then passed it down from generation to generation. So for example, our study of tafsir today is very heavily leaning upon the likes of Imam al-Tabari and the likes of uh, Ibn Abi Hatim and the likes of uh, Abdul Razak al-San'ani and many, many others from amongst the scholars of tafsir and Quran. That's something which we should acknowledge and one of the ways in which we acknowledge that is by looking at those scholars and looking at their works and looking at the biographies, the lives of those ulama rahmatullah, it is something which is extremely important. Number one, because it's something which at the very least a student can do for their teacher. And even though we're not direct students and they're not our direct teachers, we are part of a tradition, inshallah, that has spanned many, many centuries. One of the things that the scholars would do is that they would make dua for the scholars of the past and they would ask Allah Azza to shower his mercy upon them. And we also acknowledge as we know from the hadith of the Prophet وسلم, that one of the actions that a person continues to benefit from is, as he said, knowledge that people continuously benefit from. So by studying these books, by referring to them, by quoting from them, by referencing them, we are inshallah ta'ala helping them to accumulate their good deeds as well. And perhaps Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will make it a means for all of us that inshallah ta'ala in generations to come, people will hold us in similar esteem and, and benefit from our efforts, however humble and small they may be. 
and perhaps Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will allow it to be a means of accumulation of our deeds as well after we have left this world and passed on from it. So I think it's something which is extremely important. Uh, one of the things that is a common misconception sometimes, a misunderstanding, sometimes a mistake uh, amongst uh, students of knowledge is that we often think that we're the first people to have discovered something or we're at the beginning or we're the ones at the forefront or we're, you know, we're the pioneers of something. And that's not the case. Uh, the knowledge that we take, we know that it is knowledge, inshallah, that is sound because it is knowledge that has been built, built upon for centuries. It goes back. We have chains of narration that take us back to it all the way to the earliest of times. So we have, for example, uh, we have previously done, for example, the biography of Imam al-Tabari, rahimahullah ta'ala, and we've looked briefly at his methodology in his tafsir, his book of tafsir. We've previously also done uh, tafsir al-Jalalain and looking briefly at the two authors of the two Jalaluddin, Jalaluddin al-Mahalli and Jalaluddin al-Suyuti alayhim rahmatullahi jami'an and we also looked at tafsir al-Sa'di and the biography of its author Shaykh Abdurrahman ibn Nasr al-Sa'di rahimahullahu ta'ala so I thought that in that same you know, spirit, in that same vein inshallah ta'ala we will over this week and next week's lesson look at another major work from the major works of tafsir and there are many works of tafsir, as, as you all know. There's so many that if you were to actually do this as a regular feature, I think that we could probably spend a whole year of lessons just looking at the different books of tafsir and the biographies of its authors and the methodologies that we find within that tafsir. That's not something which is our main goal here, obviously, to go through each and every single book of tafsir. Whilst I think it would be beneficial and fascinating, it's something which would take too much time. But there are certain books of tafsir that we're always referring to and certain scholars that we're always referencing. So for example, Imam al-Tabari being one of them, and for example, al-Suyuti being one of them, whether it's in his uh, shorter tafsir or his longer tafsir, one of them being Shaykh Abdurrahman ibn Nasr al-Sa'di, alayhim rahmatullahi jami'an. And so I think it's good that if we can pass over at least some of the major works of tafsir that we're very familiar with, that we're constantly quoting from and so on, I think that that is something which is good and beneficial at the very least. If nothing else, we have a basic grasp and understanding of A, who those scholars were, and B, what those books are about, and uh, how their methodologies work, and how we can, inshallah ta'ala, benefit from them. And so I think that's something which is a worthwhile endeavor. It's something which is something which is, inshallah ta'ala, going to add another facet to our understanding of the Book of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and our study of the science of tafsir. So this week and next week, inshallah ta'ala, the tafsir that I settled upon. Uh, which I think is extremely important and one that we, you know, I don't think there's hardly a student of tafsir, maybe even like other than students of tafsir, just a student of knowledge in general, except that he would have heard of this scholar and his tafsir. And that is tafsir of al-imam al-Qurtubi alayhi rahmatullah. So this week, inshallah, we're going to look at the life and biography of al-imam al-Qurtubi rahimahullah. And next week we'll look closely at his tafsir and his methodology in his tafsir. But for those of you that are QP students, and for those of you that aren't QP students, but you've attended tafsir elsewhere, I think that it is rare to study a tafsir or to listen to a tafsir lecture or to read a book of tafsir, except that you would find in one way or another some type of referencing, some type of mention of this scholar and his book of tafsir. And Imam al-Qurtubi rahimahullah ta'ala is one of those people that Allah Azza wa Jal wrote for them acceptance. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows people's intentions and he knows them better than we do. And so that's why it is often the case that a person, you know, like, and there's, and there's literally dozens, if not hundreds of books of tafsir. 
Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala selects certain books of tafsir and Allah azza wa selects certain scholars and not just in tafsir but in hadith and in, in fiqh and in all of the other sciences that we have and Allah azza wa gives those people some type of prominence. You know, if you look at, for example, the books of, of hadith and there are many books of hadith but the sixth, the scholars kind of settled upon Bukhari, Muslim, Abu Dawood, and Nasaiya, Tirmidhi, Ibn Majah Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala selected those people and it doesn't mean that they were the first scholars to ever write or collect in, in the field of hadith or even that they were perhaps the greatest of them because there were many who had teachers before them that also had works but Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala chooses as he pleases Jalla fi Ula and he blesses whomsoever he pleases and he accepts the endeavors of whomsoever he pleases subhanahu wa ta'ala in the field of tafsir and the science of tafsir likewise Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala selected certain people if you were to ask someone just the average student of knowledge, the beginner student of knowledge, you know, name me some books of tafsir, I think that tafsir ibn Kathir and tafsir al-Tabri and tafsir al-Qurtubi would be very, very high in that list of tafsir that a person was to select. If you were to say to someone, give me your five books of tafsir or the five top books of tafsir, I think that Imam al-Qurtubi, more or less without exception, would make that list uh, amongst most people. And that's just because of its fame and how well-known it has become and how well studied and well read and well published and printed it has become and well widespread it has become uh, across the Muslim world and obviously now across the rest of the world as well. And so I think that it is something which is worthwhile looking at. This amazing scholar and this person that, we, uh, you know, that we're going to refer to inshallah ta'ala today. I want to preface uh, this particular section which is the biography of Imam Al-Qurtubi rahimahullah ta'ala by mentioning something about Imam Al-Qurtubi and that is that is one of those figures in our Islamic history that we don't have a great deal of information about. We don't have the most detailed biography concerning Imam Al-Qurtubi. Now there are scholars that we have a great deal of information concerning them and we know their biography intimately and we know where they traveled and who they studied with and how much they studied with them. We know even before they were students of knowledge or before they became scholars of their own right, we know much about their background and their family and their origin and, and what kind of society they grew up, grew up in and, and their personal like you know stories and, and moments that transpired during their lives as children and as young adults and then as adults and so on and so forth. Some scholars, we have that much information that you could literally write a book and you would be hard-pressed to accumulate all of that information into a single volume. But then there are other scholars, and Imam Al-Qurtubi is one of them, who we don't actually have as much information. That doesn't mean that he was unknown, doesn't mean that people didn't know of him, doesn't mean that we don't have any information that is someone who is, you know, what we call majhul, someone who is completely unknown uh, amongst the scholars, no. But at the same time, it is also quite evident that there isn't an amazing plethora of information in terms of the life uh, of Imam Al-Qurtubi rahimahullah ta'ala and that shows you also that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala chooses whomsoever he wills just to go and to emphasize that point it's not always the most famous it's not always the ones that have had their biographies written most it's not always the one that had the greatest teachers or the most famous teachers or the most famous students no sometimes Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala chooses someone who was relatively obscure in terms of the many of the scholars that existed who were much more well known whose Books were probably, uh, you know, like accepted or, or written and were, were more widely, widely distributed during their own lifetime. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala chooses some people and he chooses and he doesn't choose others. Just look at the four madhabs of fiqh, right? Imam Malik, Imam Abu Hanifa, Imam Shafi, Imam Ahmad. 
Are they the only four scholars of fiqh that ever existed in our ummah? No. We know that their teachers and their teachers' teachers in some instances were great scholars. Right? You have scholars at the time of the Tabi'een like Imam al-Hassan al-Basri and Sa'id ibn Jubayr and Sa'id ibn Musayyib and Ibrahim al-Nakha'i and others from amongst the scholars who are in some cases the teachers of those four Imams in other cases the teachers of the teachers of those four Imams. But their madhabs didn't last. Their knowledge or their fiqh wasn't preserved in the same way that we have of the four Imams. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala does as he pleases and chooses as he pleases Jalla fi ula. That doesn't mean that the status of those scholars is any less or any diminished, but Allah Azza wa for a wisdom that is known to him subhanahu wa ta'ala, chooses certain people and he elevates them. And other people, their status is still elevated with him subhanahu wa ta'ala, Allah Azza wa knows best, but not necessarily that they would be well known or that their works are as widely spread or that their knowledge is as widely spread amongst the lay people especially and amongst the beginning streams of knowledge as it would be otherwise. So Imam Al-Qurtubi Ta'ala, I just wanted to make that introduction about him because he is one of those people that we don't have the most detailed biography concerning as I think it will become apparent inshallah uh, shortly as we go through it, uh, as we go through his biography. Imam Al-Qurtubi Ta'ala, his kunya is Abu Abdullah, right? And as we know kunya, kunya is basically when it's prefaced by Abu or Um or Ibn or Bint, that is a kunya. And it's something very common amongst, as we know, the Arabs. Uh, it was a very common uh, form of addressing someone. And so the kunya of Imam Qurtubi is Abu Abdullah. His name is Muhammad ibn Ahmad ibn Abi, ibn Abi Bakr al-Qurtubi al-Ansari rahimahullahu ta'ala. So his name is Muhammad, the son of Ahmad. Muhammad ibn Ahmad. And it's important that you make that distinction here because there were many Qurtubis from amongst the scholars. Al-Qurtubi is in reference to an area in, in, Andal- in Andalusia Andalus, which is the city of Cordoba. Cordoba in Arabic is Qurtuba. Anyone that hails and comes from that city is therefore referred to as Al-Qurtubi. And Al-Qurtubi or Al-Qurtuba, the city of Cordoba, was a place where many, many scholars emanated from. All of those scholars, therefore, are known as Al-Qurtubi. So when you say Al-Imam Al-Qurtubi, it is a very common mistake to make and to become confused between the different people that had that same ascription to Al-Qurtuba. So, for example, uh, there's a famous scholar who wrote a, uh, he, and, and I'll actually come through this because he's actually one of the teachers of this Imam Al-Qurtubi, who is the scholar of Tafsir. One of his teachers' names is also Al-Qurtubi, but it's a different Qurtubi as we'll mention when we come to the teachers of this Imam Al-Qurtubi. That Imam Al-Qurtubi, who is the teacher of this one, it's going to become confusing now, but uh, you know, like that Qurtubi, wrote a, a, an explanation of Sahih Muslim. So one of the explanations of Sahih Muslim was written by the Imam Al-Qurtubi and it's published as well, uh, widely available today. People often make the mistake to think that that Qurtubi is this Qurtubi. So they will say, yes, Imam Al-Qurtubi, he wrote the book of Tafsir and he also wrote an, an explanation of Sahih Muslim. But no, that Qurtubi is different to this Qurtubi. And so that's something which is extremely important to remember. Similar to it is the name of Al-Maqdisi. Al-Maqdis or Al-Maqdisi is referring to people who came from Baytul Maqdis. So you have Ibn Qudam Al-Maqdisi, you have Abdul Ghani Al-Maqdisi, you have many people whose name or ascription comes to Baytul Maqdis. And so people often become uh, confused because of that, right? Even Ibn Taymiyyah, rahimahullah, the famous scholar, there is Ibn Taymiyyah that is well known to everyone, who is you know, the one that people often refer to as Shaykh al-Islam. But his grandfather was also a very well-known scholar, as was his father. 
And so some of the books that people refer to that are written by Ibn Taymiyyah is not written by Ibn Taymiyyah, the famous one. It's written by his grandfather, who was a scholar in his own right of the Hanbali madhab. So it's very easy to become confused, and that's why it's extremely important to remember this. Al-Tabari is one of the other ones. Tabari refers to a place called Tabristan. There were many scholars who came from Tabristan, and those scholars, all of them are referred to as Tabari. Not all of them are the authors of the tafsir. There are others who are also known as Tabari. Right? And so it's extremely important to remember this because this is a common mistake that you will find, especially amongst uh, you know, students of knowledge or especially amongst people who, who haven't yet understood this, although they sometimes become easily confused by simply thinking that if someone says Qurtubi, it can only be referring to one. Right? And so we have to make that distinction, it's extremely important. So Imam Qurtubi comes from, therefore, as we can, as we say, Al Qurtuba, right? which is the area of. Andalusia, which is the you know the, the empire that the Muslims had in southern Spain, Portugal, the area extending to northern Africa, uh, that is called the 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 uh, kingdom of Andalusia, and the king kingdom of Andalusia had some major cities in it. From them was Granada, Garnata, and from them was Cordoba, right or Cordoba in Arabic. Imam al-Qurtubi Taala was born there in Cordoba. We don't know when he was born because his uh, biographies don't mention a, a date of birth, but it, it seems likely, and Allah Azza wa knows best, that he was born towards the end of the 6th century, so towards the very end of the 500s of the Hijrah. So maybe 580, 590, around that time, in that particular kind of time period, the very end of the 6th century of the Hijrah. And he was born in, as we said, Cordoba, which is a city from the major cities, from the major cities of what was known as Al-Andalus. We know, Rahimullah Ta'ala, that he grew up in a, a household in which he was with his parents and, and he lived with his family. We know, for example, because this, this, they mentioned in general that he was someone who from an early age started to seek knowledge. He learned Arabic, he learned the Quran, he learned uh, you know, grammar, he learned whatever else, and then he started to read the different books of fiqh and nahu and qiraat of the Quran and so on and so forth, and he began to study in that way. And he would stay in Cordoba until the very end of uh, around 633 of the Hijrah. In 633 or 632 Hijrah, around that time, Cordoba was, uh, was sacked. Meaning that it was conquered by the, uh, you know, by the the, Span, the Spanish, uh, who were who were fighting the Muslims of that region. They conquered Cordoba, and so a lot of those people that lived there, they left, right? They fled from those lands and they went elsewhere. And so for the first 30, 40 odd years, Imam Al-Qurtubi Taala stayed in Cordoba, and then after that he would go and he would leave, and he would eventually settle in Egypt. That is where he would go to, and that is where he would eventually pass away. One of the things that we understand therefore from the life of Imam Al-Qurtubi is that he lived in that period of history that was extremely tumultuous. It was a period of history that was difficult. We know that the Muslims conquered uh, you know, the, the, um, the, the lands of Al-Andalus uh, very early on. Right? We're talking about still within the first century of Islam. So around the year 92, 93, 91 around that period of time, so we're talking about the Umayyad dynasty now, in the time of the Umayyads, it is said in the, in the Khilaf of al-Walid, Ibn Abdul Malik, 
He was the one who set up the armies that went to Northern Africa. They conquered a great portion of North Africa. And then they would send, and they sent people further on. So for example, the leader, one of the major leaders of that time was Musa ibn Nusayr. And Musa ibn Nusayr was the person who was the governor of that North African province. And one of his major generals, one of the major people that he had with him was a man by the name of Tariq ibn Ziyad. And Tariq ibn Ziyad was the one who would later go on, or he would go on during that period to conquer what we now know as Gibraltar. And Gibraltar comes from the Arabic word Jabal Tariq. It's called the mountain of Tariq, named after Tariq ibn Ziyad. And it is Tariq ibn Ziyad and Musa ibn Nusayr, these two figures that would then expand into what was the Iberian Peninsula and still is the Iberian Peninsula, but what we would uh, in modern day geography know as the countries of Spain, especially the southern half of Spain and Portugal next to it. They would conquer the area. And so from the very early times, we're talking about the Umayyad dynasty, right? The Muslims had established their foothold in that part of what is uh, southern Europe. And so for therefore we have like many, many scholars that emanated from that. This was a place that became a center of learning. And it's a place that became a center of knowledge. And it's a place that became a place of ilm and a place where people would go and seek knowledge. And I think most of us have probably heard, you know, the other stories about in terms of how advanced Andalusia became in terms of just general Europe, in terms of the hygiene, in terms of the technology, in terms of the science, in terms of the knowledge and the learning that people would have, that even the non-Muslims who went there and they and they traveled through or they were emissaries or whatever, they marveled at the beauty of Cordoba in terms of that time, right? Because we're talking about very early on, we're talking about, uh, you know, when Cordoba is sacked, uh, in, uh, towards the very end, which is during the life of Imam al-Qurtubi it's been under Muslim rule for about nearly 500 odd years. And so it's sacked, if you were to look at it in terms of the, uh, you know, in terms of the uh, Gregorian calendar, we're talking about the mid-1200s AD, right? So 1200s AD, these are what we call the, the kind of like the Middle Ages, right, in, in European history. These are the times of the Crusades and so on. And this is the time where, you know, many of the, the countries of, of, of Europe are still in relative poverty for the masses anyway and so this is the time where uh, Andalus is at its prime in terms of where it is but over time as we know you know there's there are problems there's politics there's issues there's people that start to uh, you know become distanced from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for one way or another one reason or another we have the Muslims becoming weakened until eventually you know like eventually they would lose all of as we know the area of southern Spain and Andalus but one of the major events that takes place is during the time of Imam al-Qurtubi rahimahullahu ta'ala and that is that the city of Cordoba which was one of the major centers of living uh, and learning of Andalus it was lost during his time so this is the kind of time period that we're going on to and we'll speak about the knowledge of of Al-Andalus uh, surely but one of the incidents that Imam al-Qurtubi rahimahullahu ta'ala makes mention of himself in his tafsir and this is sometimes the beauty of reading the books of tafsir. If you read Ibn Kathir, you read Al-Qurtubi and so on, sometimes you get this, these nuggets that are not, they're not indexed, you know, they're not, they're not like just found. You would have to read the tafsir to be able to extract them and find them. So for example, Ibn Kathir, on one occasion he mentions a sanad, a chain of narration that he, Ibn Kathir mentions a chain of narration that he narrates of Imam Ahmad, narrating from Imam Shafi'i, narrating from Imam Malik, rahimahullah. And it's a sanad that he mentions because he says that I wanted to mention it because it contains three of the four great imams of fiqh, right? Three of the four great imams of Islam. That's something which you find, and it's a nice thing to read in the books of, of tafsir. It's not a book of fiqh, right? It's a book of tafsir, but you will find something like this in there. 
similar to it is what Imam Qurtubi mentions when he's speaking about the verse in the Quran وَلَا تَحْسَبَنَّ الَّذِينَ قُتِرُوا فِي سَبِيلِ اللَّهِ أَمْوَاتَ which is the verse in Surah Al-Imran I think verse 169 or something around there where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says and don't think that those who have been killed in the path of Allah are dead but rather they are living being provided for with their Lord Imam Qurtubi ta'ala, he speaks about the issue here one of the issues that come under this verse is concerning the person who is killed by the enemy, but they're not combatants. They're not fighting an army, they just happen to be everyday citizens, and the enemies come and they invade their city without them knowing, and they kill them. This person that's killed, the Muslim person who's killed, is he someone who is given the, the burial and the funeral rites of a, of a person who's a soldier? Right? A person who's a soldier, because as we know, the Prophet ﷺ told us, that when the person who is a soldier is killed, as the Prophet did in the Battle of Uhud and so on, they're not washed, right? And they're not, they're not given uh, some of the things that we would do to a normal Muslim who has funeral rites. But they're buried in the way that they are buried. Does that person who's killed in that way, does he take that same ruling? Or is he someone who's killed and washed in the normal way, in the way that we would normally observe the rites of Janazah? And Imam Al-Qurtubi mentions this, and the reason why I'm saying this is because it shows one of the very few instances that Imam Al-Qurtubi refers to a very personal incident in his life. He said that this is a situation, the one that I just mentioned, what happens to those types of people? He said this is a, a situation that actually occurred to us in Qurtuba. May Allah Azza wa Jal safeguard Qurtuba and, and, and bring it back from our enemies, he says. It took place on the third day of Ramadan in the year 627 of the Hijrah. When the people were just going about their everyday business. And the enemies came without any announcement, meaning without them knowing why they were caught unaware by surprise, and many of them were killed and others from amongst them imprisoned. He says, And from amongst those people that were killed on that day was my own father, Rahimahullah Ta'ala. So we therefore understand that Imam Qurtubi's father, Rahimahullah, died in the year 627 of the Hijrah. And it is one of the few things, personal things, that we have about the life of Imam Al-Qurtubi because Imam Al-Qurtubi mentions this himself. He doesn't mention it, by the way, just to get, like, you know, uh, I don't know, praise or, so, or to get people's sympathy or whatever. He's because he's mentioning it as a mas'ala, right? as an issue of fiqh and a ruling that is required. And he goes on to say, so I asked a number of my teachers, one of them I asked, and he said, treat them like the soldier, meaning treat your father, his death, like the death of a soldier on the battlefield. And I asked another sheikh and he said to me, no, actually just bury him with the, uh, the bury him the way that every other Muslim would be buried and washed and so on. And so he's bringing this to show that there is a difference of opinion in terms of this particular issue. But it just shows, and the reason why I mention this is because it shows, number one, one of the few instances that we have concerning the personal life of Imam Al-Qurtubi, rahimahullah, number two, it shows to us that the very difficult situation and times that he was living in, rahimahullah ta'ala, because he's essentially living in a war zone, in, 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 on the frontier lands of battle and so on. And number three, it shows us that Imam al-Qurtubi rahimahullah ta'ala is something which he speaks about. You know, he's focusing on uh, this issue here in the context of it being an issue of knowledge and an issue of learning, rahimahullah ta'ala. Andalus, as we know, was a place of amazing learning. So from the very early times, like from the second, third century of Islam. So for example, one of the people that, that traveled to uh, to Imam Malik ta'ala, and narrated from him his muwatta is a man by the name of Yahya ibn Yahya al-Layfi. And Yahya al-Layfi, 
the Muwatta' today that we have, the Muwatta' Imam Malik, is narrated to us through a number of narrations. There's a narration of a Zuhri, and there's the narration of Muhammad ibn Hassan, and there's a number of narrations of the Muwatta'. The most famous of them, the most well-known, the most well, uh, you know, the well-studied, well and so on. And it is the one that those scholars who then came later and they wrote explanations of the Muwatta', the one that they would base it upon, is the narration of Yahya Layfi. And Yahya Layfi is a man who lived in Andalus. He traveled from Spain all the way to Al-Imam Malik in Medina. And he stayed with him for a number of years and he studied with him and he came back and he brought back with him the knowledge of Imam Malik And that is why the people of Andalus were known to be Maliki. Imam Al-Qurtubi and the scholars of Al-Andalus were Maliki in their fiqh. They were Maliki in their madhab. And that's why even till today, many of the Muslims of North Africa Right, are still Maliki. Many people in the likes of 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 of, uh, of Morocco and Algeria and those types of places, there is still a very strong. And even if you go all the way down to Mauritania and those places, there is still a very strong element of Maliki madhab in terms of the fiqh that those people practice. But there were many other scholars who then came and just to give a, a you know just to just so that we can understand some of the amazing scholars that emanated from this place that was Andalus, so that you understand that Imam Al-Qurtubi is not just one, he's someone who comes in a long line of scholars, and they continue even after Imam Al-Qurtubi passes away. The likes of Ibn Hazm, the famous scholar Ibn Hazm al-Zahiri, and Ibn Abd al-Barr, and Ibn Atiyah, who's another famous scholar of tafsir that we often refer to, and Abu Hayyan, who's also another famous scholar of tafsir, who sometimes we refer to, especially when it comes to the Arabic language and, and issues of eloquence and Arabic grammar and so on. Al-Shatibi, uh, who is the famous author of the book Al-Muwafaqat. These are all scholars who, who came. And if you were to look at, for example, Quran, or you were to look at Tafsir, or you were to look at Hadith and Sunnah, or you were to look at Fiqh, in any of those major sciences of Islam, you will find that there were scholars in Andalus who focused on this. And we have scholars who literally wrote about them. So, for example, from the most famous scholars of Qira'at and Quran in terms of recitation and so on, that we know is Al-Imam. Abu Amr al-Dani, and Abu Amr al-Dani was from the scholars of Al-Andalus. And Al-Dani is the one who later on in Imam al-Shatibi would come, he was the one who wrote the famous poem of the seven major qira'at. His name is Imam al-Shatibi, and Shatibi is also, anytime you hear Shatibi, it means that they also lived in Andalus. Shatibi also comes from Al-Andalus. He will later come, so two of the major scholars of qira'at, two of the greatest scholars of qira'at in our history, come from Andalus. Abu Amr al-Dani and Al-Imam al-Shatibi alayhima rahmatullah. If you were to look at, for example, Tafsir, Qurtubi, Ibn Atiyah, right? Ibn al-Arabi, who is the, the author of Ahkam al-Quran, not the philosopher, but the scholar of the Maliki Madhab. These were scholars also, all of them coming from Andalus. Right? And so it's not just the one odd one, it's not just Imam al-Qurtubi by himself or the odd scholar here or there. We're talking about the likes of Ibn Abd al-Barr and his work in hadith and Ibn Hazm and his work in, 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 in fiqh and so on and then you have the likes of Ibn al-Faradi many many scholars of Islam literally came from this area of the world and that's an important point because one of the things that I think sometimes we you know we, we, we maybe living in the west or we're kind of like uh, you know distance from Muslim lands or maybe because we don't speak Arabic or what have you uh, you know sometimes we think that we don't have the ability to seek knowledge and to learn Right? We're not living in, in Egypt, or we're not living in Saudi Arabia, or we're not living in Yemen, or we're not living in wherever we, we think that those centers of knowledge should be. 
This shows though that the center of knowledge can be anywhere. If you have enough people that are willing to learn and that are serious in terms of their studies and are willing to put in the time and effort, they can begin a movement that they will find that inshallah ta'ala Allah Azza wa through his blessings will make last for hundreds of years. And I think as Muslims living in Europe, in the US, in North America, in, in the UK, in Australia, and these types of English speaking countries, it is high time for us now as second, third, sometimes fourth generation Muslims that we also start to build up this type of thing. Now clearly, doesn't mean that the situation of Andalus, because Andalus is essentially a Muslim country for many parts of that time, many parts of their history, and it is also a country where Arabic is the main language and so on. There are clearly differences between the two. But it shows that if on our doorstep here in the UK, which is essentially Spain, right, it's like not very far in terms of distance, if it's somewhere you can have an amazing center of learning, then there is no reason why we can't do that today for our own children and our own communities. And it's something which we need to look at, right? We need to get away from just, you know, reading the odd translated book. We need to go back to the knowledge of the Salaf and we go back to the early sources of Islam in tafsir, in hadith, in aqidah, in, in fiqh, in whatever it may be. And we start to read those books. And yes, it will be difficult. And yes, it will require translation. And yes, it will be slow as the process is, for example, with QP. But it is something which, inshallah, we will do and we can do, and others inshallah ta'ala will then come after us and build upon our efforts and upon our footsteps, and they will inshallah take it another step further. But I, want to, I wanted to mention this because it is extremely important, right, that we don't become downcast, that we don't think, oh, actually, we don't have much of a choice. If an Imam Al-Qurtubi comes from an area as far from, you know, like this is as far from Mecca and Medina as you can essentially get. On the one side, you have Andalus, which is southern Spain, on the other side, you have the countries which today would be modern-day Uzbekistan and Azerbaijan and so on. They are just as far in the east. From that side, you have amazing scholars like several Imam al-Nasai and Imam al-Bukhari and Imam al-Tirmidhi. One of them come from that very extreme east side of Asia uh, you know, in terms of what the Muslim world was known for at that time. They came from one extreme of the Muslim empire. And then from the western extreme, if you like, we have these scholars of al-Qurtum and these scholars of of, of Al-Andalus who also were people of amazing knowledge and look at what they achieved look at those scholars in terms of what they brought to our religion Imam Al-Tabari Al-Tirmidhi Al-Nasai Bukhari Muslim all of those scholars and look at what the likes of Ibn Hazm and Ibn Abdul Barr and Al-Qurtubi and these scholars as Shatimi brought from this as well and so it's something which you know people should uh, understand in terms of what we're trying to do and what we're trying to learn right and when you think in that way inshallah ta'ala anything is possible with Allah's blessings and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's grace and bounties are non-exhaustive or non-exhausting. If you have that mindset, however, that it's very limited, that you can't study Islam here, that you can't learn like this, that you have to travel, or that you have to, you know, you can't do it in this way, then you know, unless you're very one of those very few fortunate people that has the ability to do so, to travel and to study in that manner, you will always have that mentality that you can't and you won't, and you will never progress in that way, and our communities will never progress. In that way as well. So, Al Imam Al Qurtubi lived in a difficult time, but despite that, he was a person of knowledge, he's a person of studying, he's a person of, of learning. And he has a number of teachers that were well known. From amongst them were those that he studied with whilst he was in Qurtuba, and others from amongst them were scholars that he would then later meet when he came to Egypt and he settled there. Rahimahumullah. Remember when Egypt is, or Cordoba is sacked in around 632-633 of the Hijra. Many of those scholars emigrate. Many of those people, they emigrate. And a lot of them, a great number of them, 
ended up settling in Egypt. Egypt became, and it was already, a major center of learning and a major center of knowledge and so on. But it would also then become a place where many other scholars would go and they would also reside. From his most well-known teachers, and Imam Al-Qurtubi Ta'ala's most well-known teachers, is a man by the name of Abu Ja'far Ahmad ibn Muhammad al-Qaisi. But he is more famously known as Ibn Abi Hujjah. Ibn Abi Hujjah, it is said that that was the laqab or the nickname of his grandfather. And then it continued with subsequent generations. And so the scholar that we're referring to, he's famously known as Ibn Abi Hujjah. And he died in the year 643 of the Hijrah. And he was well known for Qiraat. He was someone who was a scholar of Qiraat. And Imam Al-Qurtubi, rahimahullah ta'ala, learned from him. And he studied from him the Qiraat. Ibn Abi Hujjah is someone that Imam Al-Qurtubi rahimahullah ta'ala mentions by name in his tafsir. So on a number of occasions in tafsir Al-Qurtubi, Imam Al-Qurtubi will actually say that I spoke or I asked my teacher so-and-so and he will name him. I asked him about this issue and this is what he said. Or I heard my teacher say or my teacher narrated. And he mentions those teachers. And so this is one of the ways that we know because as I said, his biography isn't extensive in that way where people wrote all of this stuff. But one of the things that we can gleam about his life is what Imam Al-Qurtubi mentioned himself and he often refers to his teachers in his books, all of his books, not just his tafsir, but one of the scholars that he refers to in his tafsir and outside of his tafsir as well is this scholar by the name of Ibn Abi Hujjah. The second of his teachers, and, and he has many but we're just going to mention about four or five, the second of them is a man by the name of or a scholar by the name of Abu Muhammad Abdul Wahhab Ibn Rawaj, Ibn Rawaj who died in the year 648 of the Hijrah. And Ibn Rawaj is a scholar that was well known for hadith and so on. And he is someone that Imam Al-Qurtubi narrates from, but not usually in his tafsir. He will mention him and refer to him, but not usually in his tafsir, usually in his other books that he has authored, rahimahullah ta'ala. A third teacher of his is a scholar by the name of Bahauddin Ali ibn Hibatillah al-Shafi'i who died in the year 649 of the Hijrah, right? Shafi'i being, meaning that he's from the scholars of the Shafi'i Madhab. A fourth teacher that he had was a teacher that is also known as a Qurtubi, but his name is Abu al-Abbas Diyauddin, Ahmad ibn Umar al-Qurtubi. This Qurtubi, the one that authored tafsir, his name is Muhammad ibn Ahmad. The second one is Ahmad ibn Umar al-Qurtubi, and he's the one who wrote the explanation of Sahih Muslim. And he died in the year 656 of the Hijrah. And he wrote a book, an explanation of Sahih Muslim that is known as Al-Mufhim Fi Sharhi Sahih Muslim. Al-Mufhim Fi Sharhi Sahih Muslim. And Imam Al-Qurtubi ta'ala often quotes from this teacher, Al-Qurtubi, his teacher whose name is also Al-Qurtubi. He often refers to him in his tafsir. He will often say, and I asked Abu al-Abbas. If you read, I asked Abu al-Abbas in tafsir Al-Qurtubi, this is who he's referring to, his teacher who is the author of the explanation of Sahih Muslim. And he will often refer to his teachers by their kunya. So he will say concerning Ibn Abi Hujjah, I asked Abu Ja'far, because that's his kunya, Abu Ja'far. That means he's referring to Ibn Abi Hujjah. Here he will say, I asked Abu Abbas, and Abu Abbas said to me, or I heard Abu Abbas say. If he's saying a teacher of his is Abu Abbas, that is his name, Al-Qurtubi. And this is something which is important, because otherwise, when you're reading the Al-Qurtubi, you kind of lost us to... Who is Abu al-Abbas? Right? Who is he referring to? Why is he saying that Abu al-Abbas said, who is this Abu al-Abbas? But once you understand, and Imam al-Qurtubi, and you've read through his tafsir, you will understand that he's referring to this particular teacher of his. And the fifth one that we will mention in the last one, 
and the scholar by the name of Al-Hassan ibn Muhammad At-Taymi Al-Naysaburi, who died in the year also of 656 of the Hijrah. So these are just some of the teachers that he is known to have, and many of them we know of because Al-Imam Al-Qurtubi directly refers to them as his teachers, whether it's in his tafsir or whether it's in one of the other books that he authored, Rahimahullah Ta'ala. He will often say that I narrated from, that I heard, that I asked my teacher, that I asked our sheikh, I asked our uh, the, the, our, our Imam and so on and that essentially refers to one of his teachers right? and then he names them and so we know that that's something which he has and that is more information than what we have concerning his students because obviously as Imam Al-Qurtubi narrates from his teachers he doesn't narrate from his students and we don't have a great deal of information in terms of who his students were and clearly he must have had many students because he was a one-known scholar of his generation and many people came and they and they and they studied with him, but we don't really necessarily know their names, other than his son. His son, his name was Shihabuddin Ahmed, Ahmed ibn Muhammad al-Qurtubi. That's his son, Ahmed, and it is said that he was one of the students uh, that we know of concerning Imam al-Qurtubi, but we don't have a great deal of knowledge concerning who his other students were. And Imam al-Qurtubi also authored a number of books other than his tafsir. So his tafsir, as we learn, will come on to, inshallah, next week in more detail. His tafsir is called Al-Jami' Li-Hakam Al-Qur'an. Al-Jami' Li-Hakam Al-Qur'an. And it is, and it has a longer name than that that will come on to next week. But it is often referred to as Al-Jami' Al-Jami' or Tafsir Al-Qurtubi. So if someone says that Imam Al-Qurtubi said in Al-Jami' it's often referring to his tafsir because that is the first word of the title of his tafsir or, or, or you know what is more common in our time now is tafsir al-qurtubi and with the vast majority of the tafsir that we have today they have taken on the names of their authors as opposed to being referred to with their actual names that the, their authors gave to them right it is very similar to the books of hadith so for example sahih al-bukhari is not the title that imam al-bukhari gave to his sahih Jami' al-Tirmidhi is not the title that al-Tirmidhi gave to his book of hadith. Sunan al-Nasai is not the title that al-Imam al-Nasai gave to his sunan. And so we became, they became known though by the authors because it just became easier to refer to them. Because if you were to say, oh, al-Jami' al-Sahih al-Mukhtasar al-Musnad al-Mukhtasar and gave the whole title of the name of Sahih al-Bukhari, many people probably wouldn't know what it's referring to or they would ask what it's referring to. And so it just simply became easier to refer to it as the Sahih of Imam al-Bukhari, right? as the Jami' of Imam al-Tirmidhi, as the Sunan of Imam al-Nasai, alayhi rahmatullah. That's just how it became easier to know, but they're not the actual names that those authors gave their books. And that is very common, in fact, in, in a number of, of fields and so on, but in particular in Tafsir and Hadith, you will find that to be the case. And that's something to bear in mind. Because sometimes it can cause uh, you know, confusion in terms of one scholar refers to it and he says that Imam you know, Al-Qurtubi said in Al-Jami' Al-Hakam Al-Quran. And now you're thinking, okay, is that his tafsir or is that another book that he wrote concerning the Quran? Right? And so to understand what the name is will help. And that's very common in tafsir, especially. So tafsir Ibn Kathir is not the name of Ibn Kathir's tafsir. It's not what he called it. Tafsir Al-Tabari is not the name of his tafsir. They didn't name their tafsir after themselves. Just as the books of hadith were not named, the authors didn't name those books of hadith after themselves. But it's something which people then just, you know, just kind of became famous and widespread and people referred to it in that way. And so therefore that's the name that it took. And that is 
often the case in the vast majority of tafsir. So, tafsir al-Sa'di, right? Tafsir al-Jalalain, tafsir ibn Kathir, tafsir ibn Atiyah, you know, tafsir al-Zamakhshari, tafsir al-Razi, all of the major books of tafsir. Actually, the names of those tafsir in the vast majority of cases is not the way that we refer to them now. But that's not really a major issue in terms of, you know, if that's what it's become known for, then that's what it's become known for. And to show that it's tafsir, and, and as again I said, inshallah ta'ala, next week we'll go into this in more detail, but to show how famous this tafsir became, even from the early times, right? To show how, it be, how famous it became, Imam al-Dhahabi rahimahullah ta'ala said, Imam al-Dhahabi lived approximately maybe 200 odd years after Imam al-Qurtubi. So Imam al-Dhahabi rahimahullah ta'ala comes around 200 odd years after Imam al-Qurtubi. And he said concerning this tafsir, when he's speaking about the, the biography of Imam al-Qurtubi, he says, وَقَدْ سَارَتْ بِتَفْسِيرِهِ الْعَظِيمُ الشَّأْنُ الرُّكْبَانِ وَهُوَ كَامِلٌ فِي مَعْنَاهِ And he said, and as for his amazing tafsir, then it's something which has spread across the Muslim world, and it is something which is amazing in its meaning, meaning that it is an amazing book. And that is Imam al-Qurtubi, rahimahullah ta'ala, speaking about the tafsir of Imam, uh, Imam al-Dhahabi, speaking about the tafsir of Imam al-Qurtubi. And Ibn Farhun, rahimahullah ta'ala, said, وَهُوَ مِنْ أَجَلِّ التَّفَاسِيرِ and it is from the greatest books of tafsir and from the most beneficial of them. So that's perhaps the most famous book that we have that, that everyone knows that Imam al-Qurtubi for. But he has a number of other books that are also well known. Uh, I will mention two more just for the purposes of our, of, of our um, lesson today. The first of them is a book that is called At-Tidhkar. At-Tidhkar fi Afdalil Adhkar. And At-Tidhkar is a book that he wrote concerning the Qur'an in terms of its virtues, in terms of the etiquettes of the one who reads the Qur'an, memorizes the Qur'an, and studies the Qur'an. It is essentially a book about the Qur'an and its rewards and its virtues. So it's not a book of tafsir, but it is a book that speaks about the virtues of the Qur'an. And that is something which is common amongst the scholars of Islam. The scholars of old wrote books in terms of the virtues of the Qur'an, and the etiquettes that the person who reads and memorizes the Qur'an should be upon. So for example, Al-Imam Al-Ajurri has the very famous well-known book, Aqlaq wa Hamalatil Qur'an, the etiquettes of the carriers of the Qur'an, right, or the bearers of the Qur'an. And that's essentially a book that speaks again about the virtues of the Book of Allah and the virtues of studying the Book of Allah and the etiquettes that a person should have. Ibn Kathir has a book called Fadail al-Qur'an. Before him, well before him, uh, Abu Ubaid al-Qasim ibn Salam from the early scholars of the 3rd century I think if my memory serves me correctly he also wrote a book on the Fadail al-Quran and so the scholars have always written concerning this issue and that is for us to understand and appreciate the book of Allah subhanahu wa not in terms of its tafsir necessarily but in terms of its rewards and its virtues and its you know the etiquettes that a person should be upon when they're studying and reading the Quran and so on and so forth and so that is the book that is uh, written by Imam, by Imam uh, Al-Qurtubi also. And one of the famous books also that is written, Imam Al-Nawawi has one called Al-Tibyan. And Ibn Farhun said about the book of Al-Qurtubi concerning this particular subject, Al-Tidhkar, he said, وَضَعَهُ عَلَى طَرِيقَةِ التِّبْيَانِ لِلنَّوَوِي لَكِنْ هَذَا أَتَمُّ مِنْهُ أَكْثَرُ عِلْمًا He said that it is very similar in terms of the way that it has been placed or written, very similar to Imam Al-Nawawi's work. However, this one, meaning Al-Qurtubi's, is more and it is more complete and it is more extensive and comprehensive. From the books that were written by Imam Al-Qurtubi Taala is a book called At-Tadhkira Bi-Ahwad al-Mawta wa-Umur al-Akhira 
and it is a book that essentially speaks about the, the hereafter, speaks about all of the different narrations that he gathers. He gathers a number of narrations concerning the Akhirah, concerning death, concerning resurrection, concerning paradise, concerning Hawfi, and so on. And that is a book in which he uh, in which he gathered them, and some of the scholars said that it is, in that particular topic, one of the best uh, books that you can have in terms of his gathering narrations and hadith and statements and so on concerning that issue. And Imam Al-Qurtubi, rahimahullah ta'ala, as we said, he moved to Egypt, and that is where he would stay, rahimahullah ta'ala, until he passed away, and he passed away in the year 671 of the Hijrah in, on the ninth day, of Shawwal, on the ninth day of the month of Shawwal, which in the Gregorian calendar uh, corresponds to the year 1273 AD, 1273 AD, and he died in Egypt, and that is where he was buried, rahimahullah ta'ala. So that is a brief biography concerning Al-Imam Al-Qurtubi, and I want to just end by uh, statements of some of the scholars in terms of what they said concerning him. Al-Imam Al-Dhahabi, rahimahullah ta'ala, said concerning Al-Qurtubi, Imam Al-Mutqin. He was a wow versed imam, someone who has an ocean of knowledge, he has many beneficial books that he authored that speak to his imam and speak to his knowledge and speak to his leadership in knowledge and it shows that he was someone who was very well versed and widely read. Ibn Farhun said he was from Allah's righteous servants and from the well-known scholars of Islam who stayed away from the beautifications of this dunya and instead busied himself with the affairs of the Akhirah, and we know that his life was full of writing and teaching and worshipping Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And Ibn al-Imad said he was someone who was a great scholar and someone who was extremely well versed in hadith and well known for his authoring and he was extremely good in his penship in terms of meaning the way that he authored his, his books. And Az-Zarqali said, المفسرين, He is from the greatest scholars ever to have lived of tafsir. And so that is a brief biography. We ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that he showers at Imam Al-Qurtubi with his mercy and forgiveness, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala elevates his status, that Allah azza wa rewards him abundantly for the knowledge that he left behind, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala uh, makes it a means of his scale of good deeds becoming heavy on Yawm Al-Qiyamah, and that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala makes us and him from amongst those people that will receive his mercy on the day of judgment, and that Allah azza wa reunites us and him in the highest of companionship with the Prophet وسلم, in the highest levels of Al-Firdaus Al-A'la. That is a brief biography of Imam Al-Qurtubi in what the time allows us today. If there's any questions, inshallah, concerning in particular his life, so we leave the questions for his tafsir and methodology and so on, inshallah, till next week. Uh, but if, if there's any questions concerning his uh, life or his biography, then inshallah we can, uh, we can take them. So Sumaira is asking, uh, did he write about the siege and conquering of Cordoba in any separate books? Uh, not that I know of that he wrote uh, concerning it in terms of a, a, a standalone book, but he often refers to it in his books. He will often refer to some events that took place or some of the issues that arose concerning those events. Or he may, for example, make dua, like in his later works when he's, when he's in Egypt and so on, he often makes dua that Allah Azza wa frees Cordoba and so on and so on. You, you get um, instances and references like that but to my knowledge and Allah knows best and he has many books and not all of his books are published by the way some of them were lost we don't have them anymore some of them are still in manuscript form so they're not being published 
Um, to my, to the best of my knowledge, he doesn't have a book particularly about that history and what took place and the events and so on. But he has, uh, you know, in his books references to those events, and Allah Azza wa Jalla knows best. Uh, were there two famous Shatibis? Yes, there were a number of Shatibis. So one of the famous Shatibis is the Imam of Qiraat, right? He's the one who has the famous book of, of uh, the famous poetry in in, in the Qiraat of the seven Qira and that is often referred to as the Shatibiyah named after him, even though its actual name is Hirzul Amani, but it's often referred to as the Shatibiyah. That is one Shatibi. Then we have another Shatibi that is the author of the book Al-Muwafaqat. And Al-Muwafaqat is considered to be one of the greatest books of Usul al-Fiqh and Qawaid al-Fiqhiyya and Maqasid al-Shari'a and that kind of like, uh, you know, that kind of, 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 of science. It is one of the greatest books that is known uh, to have been written on that. And that is also an, a Shatibi. Yeah, that was also a Shatibi that wrote that book, but there are two different ones. So as I said, these uh, titles, you know, Shatibi, Qurtubi, uh, you know, even even a Nasai, uh, you know, all of these are referring to places. And so because it's a place, it's like someone saying, you know, British, right? Or someone saying American or someone saying, you know, Pakistani or Indian, right? It's not just going to be one person. There's going to be many, many people who came from those lands who were people of knowledge or people of, 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 of uh, learning. And so the same when we say Shatibi or Qurtubi or any of those uh, types of, of names, you know, odds are that there will be more than one. There are some that are famous and the way that we know that they are famous is because especially when we're speaking about it in context, so if we're speaking about Tafsir and we say Qurtubi, then you know. Right? If you're speaking about Tafsir and you say Tabari, then you know. If you're speaking about Hadith you know, and you say Bukhari, then it's kind of known. If it's not that Bukhari or not that Tabari or not that Qurtubi, then usually what would happen is someone would, uh, you know, would make that clearer. Or they would refer to the book. They would say, Al-Qurtubi said in his explanation of Sahih Muslim. And then you will know, okay, that's the Qurtubi that's being referred to. However, if you don't know that, or, you know, that's not something which you're well-versed in, then that confusion may, uh, you know, may, may transpire. And that's why, uh, you know, I said just to keep that in mind, right? So, so that when you do hear it in other lectures, you come across in other places, sometimes it's good to pause and think, okay, maybe it's not the same one. I just need to do a quick search or ask someone to see if it's the same scholar or if it's someone who is different. Okay. So inshallah ta'ala, if there's no more questions, then we will conclude for today. And inshallah ta'ala, next week, we will look at the uh, the methodology of the tafsir of Imam al-Qurtubi rahimahullahu ta'ala. And with that, inshallah ta'ala, I will uh, conclude. Wassalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.